we need to continue to reinvest in cities as if we thought of them as engines for people's growth and not just a place that a lot of people live in, which is, I think, the prevailing idea of what Empowering cities, building urban and transatlantic infrastructure. Urban progress needs infrastructure, whether public transportation and affordable housing or transatlantic networks to exchange best practices. Now is the time to build for a more just future. That's why in the fifth episode of our series, Empowering Cities, our panel will explore how urban alliances within and between cities can work on providing fundamental infrastructure to democracy. Empowering Cities is part of our project, New Urban Progress, a transatlantic dialogue on how to make cities more innovative, green, and for all. The dialogue took place over two international tours, four conferences, and 10 cities. The project is made possible by a joint metro initiative of Das Progressive Zentrum, the Alfred He Housing Gesellschaft, and the Progressive Policy Institute, supported by the Transatlantic Program of the Federal Republic of Germany and funded by the European Recovery Program of the Federal Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. Hi, my name is Diego Rivas. I work on innovative ways to strengthen the transatlantic partnership during difficult political times at the German think tank Das Progressive Zentrum. And you are listening to our podcast, Talking Progress. This episode is a recording of our panel discussion held at the Progressive Governance Summit in October 2022. Our host is Catherine Kluver-Ashbrook, who some of you may remember from our last podcast episode. Catherine is Executive Vice President at the Bertelsmann Foundation. With her on stage is a stellar lineup of city leaders. First, we'll hear from Amelt Müller, State Secretary and Plenipotentiary of the Free and Hanseatic City of Hamburg to the Federation of Germany, the European Union, and for Foreign Affairs. Then, we'll move on to New Urban Progress Fellows, Julian St. Patrick Clayton and Ian Lundy. And last but not least, Ulrich Hönning, Deputy Mayor for the City of Leipzig, Germany. Now, let's hear from the panel. The host, Catherine, kicks things off. So urban diplomacy is something that emerged, I think, in a more active and functional way over the past 30 years, but it began with this idea of parallel diplomacy, right? Parallel diplomacy. Think of Quebec trying to argue with the Canadian state for more rights and more language and, you know, to pull its elbows out. And then there were the city sisters or sister cities um, that came together as pairings. And sometimes they weren't very strategic pairings. They were intended for cultural exchange. They were extended for some economic exchange, but not often really how cities made their bread and butter. And then there are some exceptions. And you're going to hear from two exceptions right now. And that is the city partnership between Hamburg, the free and Hanseatic city of Hamburg, and Chicago. They've been twinned as sister cities since 1994, and Almut Möller and I, who is effectively the diplomat of the city of Hamburg, but she has a much fancier title, plenipotentiary. I love that. So Almut, what Almut does, and I'll introduce her properly in just a moment, is she represents the city of Hamburg, of course, which is a city-state, not just to the second highest chamber here in Berlin, but she represents Hamburg's interest in Brussels. But she is effectively also the woman who stewards Hamburg's international interests in the world. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you so much, uh, Catherine, oh, no, and congratulations really to the whole team behind the new Urban Progress Agenda. I was really fortunate to be invited here and there as a member of a sounding board, um, giving some thoughts from sort of my perspective. And um, I remember when I was asked uh, to do that about three years ago, I was literally transitioning from the world of ideas to the world of policy making at local level, um, because I'd spent 20 years in the world of analysis and think tanks, and uh, I felt it's uh, just about time to roll up sleeves and show whether any of that is really relevant in real life. And the journey that I've uh, taken with that, and the way that also the urban progress agenda uh, has evolved, sort of triggered some thoughts in me, and I thought I'd share them with you, uh, much looking forward uh, to the conversation we're going to have thereafter, um, which is, I understand the idea of this great conference. Um, so I just, as I would, I got some guiding questions from the organizers, and as I would, I would go through them and start with the first one. The first one, 
was how do cities make the transatlantic partnership more resilient? And I thought, wait a minute, from my perspective, this question doesn't make so much sense. Yes, we care deeply about transatlantic relations. We've had a wonderful sister city partnership with Chicago. Um, colleagues from the um, police and fire brigades are just over in Chicago, um, you know, signing letters of uh, uh, intent on expanding their joint agendas. You know, I personally strongly believe in the value of transatlantic cooperation, but From a city perspective, I come in and ask myself, and I'm also in charge of international affairs, so my job is to try and understand how do our international ties, our partnerships with other cities and regions in the world contribute to making life in the cities that we engage with and in Hamburg better? How can transatlantic relations go beyond the idea, uh, if we look at the, sort of the transatlantic agenda, that It is great to meet each other and to get to know each other to a place where we say, yes, it's great to meet people and to make new friends, but it's even better to do great stuff with each other that is felt really in both cities very clearly. And um, those uh, who are going to be part of the, uh, the podium know much better and more granular ways uh, what that means. We live in environments where we are solving problems all the time. Um, our cities are places where citizens engage with us, um, they put challenges to us, and we have to solve problems. And whenever I found that you meet people that engage, as in the new urban progress context, people that um, are engaged in their respective environments and in, in dealing with those questions, um, when you put them together in a room and they have a decent way of understanding and communicating through a language or some support with that, it works easily because they're problem solvers. And that, I think, is the beauty, really, of projects like this, where personally, me, as a background of you know, engaging in international affairs on a sort of broad level, the first step that we can, of course, people like myself can do is to help open up a conversation uh, and a space and link uh, people. But then I really asked myself in the second step, who are the people in our city that are actually um, the ones that I would like to interest in, in this conversation? Because they come with an urban planning perspective. They deal with um, health issues, uh, social issues, social divisions um, that deal with the questions of how do we in particular in Europe right now, how do we make sure that our cities can look after those looking for shelter with the war of aggression um, that Russia has started against a sovereign state in the heart of Europe? And how can we really um, bundle and join forces to work together as cities? So my uh, vision and idea for cities um, well beyond, and there's many other examples uh, other than Hamburg and, and, and Chicago, where do we find those examples where we discover that there's actually even more of a joint interest in collaborating because we owe this to our citizens. Um, foreign affairs is nothing that can be taken for granted. It is something that has to, to deliver local communities and I think this is something where cities can make a good uh, contribution. So This was just a thought I wanted uh, uh, to put here and just share one observation because you also asked me how can we improve these ways of collaborating and the sister city partnerships of course are good uh, ones they are developed I think between Germany and, and, and the US or North, North America quite a bit um, but what I think you want to look at is something a little bit different it's looking at joint problem solving joint policy making and One observation I have, and Catherine knows this because we've talked about this before, um, I'm also in charge of our um, European relationships. And I am a bit more specific, our European Union relationships with other cities. And here we can see that the framework that the European political system provides now for cities with big budgets and, and projects, um, you know, with an, an increasingly open European Commission for um, cities and, and urban agendas, in particular with the green transition and, you know, questions of, of uh, migration, we feel that the framework that the European Union has provided gives us a lot more incentives and a lot more entry points and resources to work collectively. 
And um, this is right now in the situation that we see in um, in Ukraine a very good and a very useful one because we have frameworks in place. Um, there is organizations such as the Eurocities um, that collectively lobby our joint interests as European cities at EU level and try to influence EU policymaking. So I think for the transatlantic agenda between cities in Germany slash we were embedded in the European Union, Europe, EU Europe, um, and the U.S. is perhaps also to look at where we can work with bigger entities, umbrella organizations that can help at national levels or at EU levels or at UN levels shape urban agendas. And that I know is a very big thought, but I think if you really put it down to some very concrete areas um, and a joint Uh, agenda that is not so difficult because a lot of the questions we are dealing with are so obvious and don't differ between our places and uh, in the eu context i see this becoming a real sort of dynamic environment and that again is nothing that is happening because we feel we are contributing to europeanization this is my thinking from my own work my old word yes there's a value in that a very strong value in that but It is an abstract uh, way of looking at it. The concrete way of looking at it is that we're working together and through that we have a solidarity of deeds and of changing lives locally. And that actually is what creates the spirit and strengthens our alliance. So this is just a couple of thoughts I wanted to put to you and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Almut. I think uh, you've done such a perfect job of reiterating what we were discussing in our earlier conversation is that, you know, cities have discovered their own interests. They've discovered their own power because they're very actively negotiating. And I can tell you, and this is not a secret, that the head of Eurocities, uh, the mayor of the a city of Florence, Mr. Nardella, is de facto meeting right now with the head of the European Commission. And I think just to, you know, for those of you that don't work on cities every single day, I think it's important to think about how cities that are really at the forefront of a number of the issues that I would point it out are trying to negotiate more resources for themselves, more power for themselves. And so if you look at the Visegrad Four or the cities that are now embedded in, you know, the global compact structure, they're trying to figure out, you know, does the nation state always have to own the bag of resources and reallocate that to cities when cities are really at the front line. And um, I quibble a little bit with the sustainable development goals. Uh, goal 11 is the one on sustainable cities. And then when you go down the entire list of the sustainable development goals, you ask yourself, what of these can actually be achieved without putting, without undergirding all of these goals with cities first? Meaning to say, um, you know, this is kind of how I argued with my priest when I was confirmed about the structure of the Ten Commandments. I have the same issues uh, in a way with the sustainable development goals. I think cities are the heart, blood, and lifeblood because of everything that Imut said. Imut didn't say, but since uh, the beginning, almost weeks into the war, Hamburg, uh, that had traditionally had a relationship with St. Petersburg, had a, took an interesting diplomatic step is to change its views and then become, seek a very strong alliance with the city of Kiev. Uh, and I just came back from um, City Lab in Amsterdam Amsterdam, where, uh, you know, exactly the needs of cities in Ukraine were, couldn't have been more obvious. Uh, we had the mayor of Lemberg, the mayor of Lviv, on one of our calls, and four minutes into the broadcast, the power went down, because this was only on Monday. And that was, of course, when Russian missiles were hitting Ukrainian cities without mercy. Uh, you know, 864 kindergartens destroyed. So how that is a strategic asset uh, in a in a military conflict, I have no idea, frankly. All right, well, so to take these issues a little further, let me welcome to the stage two of our new Urban Progress fellows, Ian Lundy and Julian St. Patrick Clayton. I'll introduce them to you, but you've just met them plenty in this film. So um, both of them have very strong ties and connections to New York City, and I will, I'm sure, venture beyond that because you did just physically venture way beyond. But Ian is now uh, a senior associate at M Squared, so they do impact fund. It's an impact fund focused on sustainable mixed uh, income housing, and he comes at this perspective because he spent a lot of time at. I worked for the city of New York, so where we call it NYCHA. That's the New York uh, Housing Authority. And Julian St. Patrick Clayton is a deputy director for policy and research at the Center for NYC Neighborhoods, also, also New York City, 
with a background in the private sector, but he's had also roles at the state senate and throughout city government. So welcome back to Berlin, to the two of you, uh, jet lag notwithstanding. Dankeschön. Um, <laughs> you know, I just, I had some time last, or at the beginning of the week to uh, spend time with Clarence Anthony, who's uh, uh, the head of the National uh, League of Cities. And he said something I thought that sort of summarized a little bit what you guys experienced. And then I want to dig a little deeper. He said, cities are unifying places. They put people over potholes. They can't let politics get in the way. We're living in a world of cities where the thinking begins with human thriving, where we have one vision, one plan that will force the world to sit up and see local leadership for what it can achieve. And I wanted to get a sense of, from the two of you, if, if that was your same read from the fellowship, if you, uh, you said in the, in the film that you found more unifying elements than dividing ones, but we already teased out in our early uh, discussions, you know, there's major differences between how U.S. cities run and German cities run, starting with public financing, starting with, you know, how you, how you do resource distribution, particularly on issues of housing. So what surprised you in going around Germany and then putting in that in context? What surprised you most about what you learned while, while you were together? So I'm, I'm happy to start. Thank you, uh, and thank you to both the, the PPI and Das Policiva Zentrum for, for having us. This was a really exceptional experience. I would say cities at their best are that, but go to a local community board meeting about how to repair and rehabilitate NYCHA, New York City public housing that has not been invested in for 40 years, and you'll, you'll hear that there's no alignment, there's no unison, there's a real disconnect between what affordability looks like, what repairs should look like, and... I think, because I can only speak as an American who came through, through Germany, and what I was most surprised by was the nature of the conversation around what housing success looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, we met with the secretary for, I believe it's the state of Berlin's kind of committee on housing, and they walked us through the municipal housing structure and how there was a, a concept of municipal housing entities that have to compete with one another, that have the ability to build below market and market rate housing that can cross-subsidize mm -hmm. the latter. And that is a dramatic, revolutionary idea in the U.S. Mixing uh, market rate and below-income housing has been something that we've really, really struggled to do, and it means that we're not able to build as much. It means we don't have the same resources, we don't have the same, uh, we don't have the same toolkit that the cities and the, the entities building housing in Germany do. So that was something that really surprised me coming here, was just how different the definition of something like social housing is, and it's something I've tried to come out of this fellowship and really take into my work. Uh, my, I was at the Housing Authority when we started. I'm now at M Squared doing uh, mixed income, sustainable housing and investment. So. Well, I want to hear more about like, how that then actually works in practice because when I was working at the city of New York in 2009, we were just discussing this very weird principle that you would build different entrances for different income housing in Fourth. one building, Fourth. right? And uh, boy, are we glad that that got buried. But maybe it didn't. Maybe it got, took on a new life, Julian. You can tell us about it. But anyway, what surprised you most about fellowship and, uh, and, and that experience that you all had together? Yeah, uh, so... Uh, before we start into that, and I, I hate to dodge your question, I know you're the moderator and this probably annoys you, I just want to go back to something you started with in that quote uh, about people over potholes and uh, people over politics. Um, that first half of that is right. I do think cities, in actuality, in practice, and in principle, put people, put people over potholes and, and want to make sure that people are moving through the cities well, people are comfortable in their cities, people are safe in their cities, mm. but... When it comes to the politics, we certainly do not put our people in front of our politics. Mm -hmm. That is something that I think is a unifying thing that I saw throughout both cities, uh, excuse me, both countries, and all six cities we visited. There is a penchant for uh, folks in the public sector, and, and as someone who's worked in the public sector, the private sector, I can be completely and totally objective about this, but there is a penchant to... Um, want to serve uh, two masters, mm -hmm. in, in a sense. There's uh, this desire to make sure that um, the economic interests that are invested in cities remain. Mm -hmm. uh, you see this a lot in the U.S. where cities and states fight over um, big companies and they, you know, Amazon had this big fight with New York City to get big tax breaks to come there. You see that a lot. But that comes at 
the expense of the people who live in these cities, who are invested in these cities. I think Richard said it in the video, the people who remained in the trenches when cities had their massive downturn, and now when cities are being revitalized, these are the same people being pushed out and often are being pushed out to lower quality, in the U.S. at least, lower quality old suburban neighborhoods that are being abandoned and left behind by those same people who had, you know, the, the white flighters who had left cities and abandoned cities in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that are returning to come back to those buildings that had good bones, but they just had no money and no investment. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that when we start to really evaluate cities and how cities operate, we really need to make sure that there's a balance and an alignment between the public sector's interests and the interests of the people. Mm -hmm. And the private sector, I've worked there, I love it, the private sector is great for a number of reasons, but they should not be the primary driver of what our outcomes in cities and in our states are. We'll talk a little bit about how we get that balance right in the public-private partnership component or what you saw and what you learned being together as sort of models that you think might be applicable or could be stripped down and then scaled up in different environments because both of you are in the game of housing. But, um, Julian, um, just a little bit, what was, in traveling around, what was the thing that was you found most surprising or most challenging even um, that you were seeing in other cities where you said, look, this is, you know, the political system, the context is such that it couldn't work in the United States or vice versa. Look, strip down, the, down to the bones. This is a concept we might think about introducing at local level. Yeah, uh, there was a lot of praise for it in this video, which you saw for, for Leipzig. And I'm not just saying it because we have a representative from Leipzig here. Um, I think that... Oh, we'll bring Ulrich <laughs> into the conversation, then he can talk I, all about how great Leipzig is. I, I, I do think that the, the concept that we heard, and in our group we were the networked, network governance and democracy group, so we were always thinking of these ideas of, um, of power and how power is distributed across cities and in stakeholder groups. Um, and, and when they described to us the decisions that were made early on when Leipzig did not have its upswing and be, you know, to this cool hip city that people want to come to, they had an opportunity to go in the direction that many cities in Germany and in the U.S. did where they, you know, shed some of their, their uh, available inventory that was affordable for, uh, you know, the, the, the working class, the, the artists, the, the musicians, the folks who want to live in a, in a city. Uh, and they didn't. They kept it. They kept their cultural side. And that allowed them to then be able to attract, uh, you know, the, the new uh, folks who were coming up of age that wanted to live somewhere that they could afford, but also want to live somewhere that was accommodating to their lifestyle. That, to me, was a revolutionary concept. Mm -hmm. Most cities did not do that. Chicago eradicated its, its housing sector and their public housing sector. So, so much so that when they knocked down public housing, a lot of the folks who ended up living there dispersed across the city, and then the city ends up spending more in uh, subsidizing someone else as a landlord mm -hmm. instead of them providing quality housing. New York City didn't do that to that extent. They had that in it. the 80s, then everything, you know, and then you yes. had the whole, right. Yeah, so we had a certain administration yep. that started to shed some of its, yep. uh, some of its assets. Yep. I, I do think that the one thing that, uh, that stuck out and, and the one thing that I think is translatable is you, as a city, as a state, you have to find your direction mm -hmm. and the definition of who you are. Yeah, a mission what, statement. Your, your mission statement, your guiding principle, your ethos as a city. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you fight like hell to maintain that vision of what it is. You come back to the drawing board, you make sure that whatever direction you were going in, if you veered, you steer back to it, but you never lose sight of who you are there. Because that is the only thing that actually helps you get to where you want to be. Do you feel, okay, just because this is so fascinating, because my whole Eisenhower Fellowship was dedicated to this idea. Do you feel that in the transatlantic space, are there places that have recognized that? So Providence, uh, Rhode Island did a little bit of what I'm hearing, what, what Leipzig did. They did that. Um, Mayor Cianci, very complicated guy. Uh, we all know who know him. <laughs> Understatement. Uh, yeah. Um, but nice pasta sauce. Um, brought arts back to the heart of the city, the industrial part of the city that the city had left because he was trying to fill and repopulate and pull population from New York, right? This right. whole idea now. So, but in Colombia, the Colombian cities, for instance, it's a matter of like refinding their resilience 
made that a very strong part of their narrative, right? And so when you go and, and experience Colombian public transportation, sort of the modern incarnation of the transmillennial, if you go to places like Cali, um, uh, you know, there it's about how you understand your public transportation, keep it clean, because that is what connects all of you to one another. And the mission is that if you care for your public transportation, the city will care for you. There's a very interesting subcomponent of that mission. In looking at American cities and German cities, did you feel like some cities had that sort of brand and ethos where you're like, okay, this has been clearly understood? Yeah, uh, I'd say that I think Austin tops the list for for the U.S. of the cities we visited. Mm. Um, I I felt, uh, I'm I'm sorry if there's anyone from Denver here, I felt really disappointed in Denver. Mm. Um, I felt like Denver, when I first visited, um, had that ethos, that, that direction, that vision, and completely lost sight of it in, in the sense that, you know, we, we walked through, Neil and I actually walked through one morning just to walk around Denver before the day got started. And we saw so many tent cities. And we thought to ourselves, how in this city that's doing this well, mm-hmm. do you have this many people on the street? Mm-hmm. Many men who actually then were getting up, getting ready to go to work. So they were working but still had no home to go to. Mm-hmm. And where they, were, where they had their tent cities and the organization that we met with while we were in Denver talked about it, one of these organizations was tasked with uh, partnering with uh, the owners of parking lots to allow people to put up tent cities in revolving areas to keep their tent cities going so people can stay somewhere for months at a time in a parking lot that you have just sitting there. So that's not really solving the problem not at all. all. Um, because then, of course, you know, we all know in homeless populations, there are big mental health issues oftentimes. There's other inequality issues. You know, the root sources of a lot of those problems need to be sought elsewhere. And generally, we think in terms of proximity to the actual human, that cities would be the ones who can then engage, you know, start with the human thriving component. Um, Ian, you've seen a lot. Um, now you're looking at where, where can we invest to bring that public-private partnership to bear because you've seen it from the other side. Um, Who's doing that kind of work, that spotting of possibilities and the the vetting and and application of of private money in solving those kind of interconnected problems well? Or not well? I would I would say it's there's there's two components that have to be in place and one is committed public entities. So our work, mixed income housing, is almost not possible if there's not some public program for us to work with. Right. If there's not, a great example is Seattle, uh, or the state of Washington and Seattle has their own application of mm-hmm. this. It's called the Multifamily Tax Exemption Program. It's a requirement for some level of affordability that provides a tax exemption. And that enables us to step in with a local development partner and work on the affordability program. And we actually have, um, so my, the founder of the fund I work for, Alicia Glenn, used to be the deputy mayor for New York City and really championed mixed income housing. And so she went and raised capital. And it's one of the first funds ever that is traditional private equity, but looking for the opportunity to take the public's aim and move further. So it gives us the opportunity to step in and say, great, let's do not 20, but 25% affordability. Let's do not 20% at 80% of the area median income, but at 50% of the area median income. And if there wasn't that existing program in place, that conversation's hard to happen. It's hard to have that conversation. So it's hard to go to, we've actually tried in in Austin and asking a developer to actually, in a public-private partnership with the city, create additional layers of affordability, but the programs haven't been there. So I'd say the first critical step is there has to be a willing and devoted public partner and then you need a a different kind of private sector involvement mm-hmm. um, that's a little bit what i'm and i'm it's been 7 months so i'm hoping that's what this is is building towards a partner that is working with public institutions and public entities and and not against them or not taking advantage of them right. um, but i don't know if that answers so before I bring Ulrich up into this discussion, we talk about how this looks from the depth of the perspective of the city. I want to, I mean, just reflect on these three years that you have been together, because it, both in terms of urban development, but just in terms of the world. I mean, we had a major pandemic that challenged pretty much everything that we believed and we talked about in our mainstay session. You know, we used to think that density by and large, if managed correctly, is a good thing. Suddenly density meant death. 
Um, you know, we're in the midst of two critical transitions, the climate transition for cities. Um, you know, nothing felt more vivid, I think, for all of us who live in urban surround than this summer, where you had both extreme water and extreme drought affect, you know, the way that we operate in our cities, extreme heat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have now uh, chief heat officers at a number of places, and then You know, you have people like uh, Hank Ovink in, in, in the Netherlands, who's the special envoy for water. You know, the fact that we even need these opportunities. Now, somebody talked about, of course, the Trump administration pulling the plug out of the transatlantic relationship, but the Trump administration also pulled a plug out of relationships between cities and Washington. And some of that's still going on. We see migrants being shipped to other cities, you know. So, you know, this, this has been... But, and now, of course, this, this cataclysmic uh, war in Ukraine that's really um, gone straight for cities. I mean, cities were always the prizes of warfare, and now they're the direct target of warfare because just attacking a city is attacking its history, it's attacking its civic infrastructure. 34 mayors captured and kidnapped... Um, you know, the idea is that if you get to a city, you, you demoralize, you deracinate, you rename, you deculturize a city. And you were all in the midst of this enormous bubble of change. Um, as we think about urban thriving, what are your hopes? I mean, you're, you know, sort of the next gen. Um, looking at this cauldron of difficulty we have and then still sort of making the case for cities as, you know, the next best hope, Um, what are your hopes for the next five or ten years in the urban landscape, Ian? It is, it's really rare to be part of something, a fellowship like this, that lasts for three years. And I was just remarking how strident or how starkly different the conversations happening in Berlin now are from just a year ago mm. when we were here. Right. We were not talking about Sweden. We were not talking about Italy. We were not talking about Ukraine a year ago. Yeah. And for me, it just reminds me how little time we have for yes. each of these crises. Because right. it's not like those issues have been solved. It's not yeah. like the climate crisis we talked about last October has been solved, and there are just new nuances to it. So I think my hope is really, and it's, it's within the working paper I worked on with my group, it's that we, we understand that the messaging is important, but the action has to be there, and the action has to follow, and that we can all look at these crises and respond with, um, with action from the, both the public and the private sector in a way that is complementary, building alliances, and I, I just have to share this anecdote from our trip to Austin, because it was fascinating. We met with a group called Rethink 35, because they were expanding a highway in the middle of Austin. Mm-hmm. And this, the, the city mayor hasn't commented on it, won't comment on it, and our, I, I had not seen our group so animated as this meeting, learning that Austin, who was talking to us about their green policy, was just going to allow an expansion of a highway, which granted is state authority, but... Um, And right after that, we met with representatives from the city who are working on the city's climate equity plan and had been working on it for three years, had a beautiful plan, had a beautiful conversation about equity, yet they were allowing a highway to be expanded into a historically underinvested neighborhood. And I think my hope for the future is that highway expansions are a great manifestation or metaphor for this, but that those highway expansions won't be happening, that we can actually reverse course, that we can actually take action towards implementing the messaging and not just clarify the messaging more. Julian, yeah. message of hope. Message of hope. Um, I, I, I believe there, there's an author, Glazer, who wrote a book, Triumph of the City, um, and I think in there uh, stated that cities are uh, the greatest human invention, right? It, it's, it's, the, it's the one thing that we have actually put together that serves to benefit all of us all the time. And we should treat them as such. Cities are prized treasures. There are reasons why we can think of, I tell you, think of a great city and things start to pop into your head for all sorts of reasons. And there's, it, there's a purpose behind that. Mm. And it's because we have dumped our culture and our ideas in there. We've dumped our innovations there. And I say dumped as if it's a bad thing, but realistically, people come there with their hopes and their dreams. This is the thing that I said in my, the opening question. Uh, that we were supposed to submit to Depezed uh, about uh, what, are, what, are, what do we think when we think of cities. And I think of the hopes and dreams that people come to uh, the cities with. I grew up in New York. I grew up in Soundview in the Bronx. And you can Google that when you get home later and you can see whatever the Bronx was in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up. But I will say that, you know, coming from an immigrant family, um, the people who I grew up with, they all came there You, you, you deposited yourself into this 
really toxic situation, but you still had your hopes and your dreams mm -hmm. and your idea that, you know what, this city is going to be what makes me or breaks me and I'm going to make sure I succeed. We need to continue to reinvest in cities as if we thought of them as engines for people's growth and not just a place that a lot of people live in, which is, I think, the prevailing idea of when we think of cities. There's crime, there's a lot of people, it's crowded, there's traffic. Sure, yes. And this is a place for, where people grow and, and see themselves transform into new people. So uh, without New York City, I would, you know, I'm a broken human because of New York City, and I'm broke, and I'm a, I'm a well-adjusted human because of New York City, and I owe cities so much for my identity, and I think a lot of people feel the same way, too. All right, that was a beautiful statement to end this segment on. I'm going to just ask Ulrich Hanning to join us up here. Um, to many of you in this room, a very familiar face. He's the deputy mayor for general services at the city of Leipzig, um, which got a lot of praise in this video, uh, frankly. And speaking of cities that have undergone numerous changes, not least uh, historically, uh, as we look back on our uh, German uh, history, um, but what I loved is Zinaida's in the room, um, this idea that to allow for change in a plan for Leipzig, uh, in an Agenda 2030, you have to leave space. Or unless you just heard this whole idea of cities can make you or break you or they need to shift. Um, how, how do you think about this idea of placemaking and spacemaking in the Leipzig context? Well... First of all, thanks for the invitation and congratulations to everyone who makes this platform possible. I think this has been, I mean, I've, I've been a speaker at your dinner at, uh, at Leipzig, but I am now only starting to measure what you've been put together here. I mean, this is like a life-changing, I mean, not to compare with the Bronx in the 80s, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, sort of a life a life, well, a life-influencing experience for many people, and I think this is truly investment into minds and hearts and, and human connections that, that, that we see, and so this is, this is great that we have this in the transatlantic space. Um, well, the question on, on, on what is the Leipzig experience of growth, I mean, is, is, has been by, by design. The city lost 100,000 jobs within two years. It lost you know, 80,000 people within about 10 years after the, that sort of you know, shock of unification. And uh, it has been sort of re you know, re you know, rebuilding since. And um, so that is the sort of the story that we looked at. But it's, it's nothing, it's no secret sauce. It's just basically, you know, stick to your zoning plan, you know. That's we heard that. I, so they got that. They <laughs> clearly that's, understood that's what I, that. And, yeah. and, and also a commitment on, on part of city leadership and also close work between city council, the political leaders at the time, um, alliance across parties, uh, which you know, not the same party fragmentation that we had in other cities, and so that's 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 a truly sort of you know runder Tisch type you know round table post transition you know democratic history that that I think uh, was transitioned into also political culture in city council and that helped the different mayors who led the administration work with city council in a way that um, you know enabled them to have long-term plans instead of short-term short, short -term political gains of, you know, who gets what for what, you know, right. sort of district or so. And so I think that's, that is some of the of Leipzig experience. And, of course, now, of course, our politics gets more fragmented. It gets more conflictual, you know, if you have our current conflicts between bikers and car owners, you know, of course, we have no shortage of conflict, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's sort of why uh, the view on, on sort of keeping space, but, but uh, they, I think the space was also not a democratic or a deliberate decision of the city. It was more by sort of, it was brought to us by economic decline. Mm -hmm. It was brought to us with 25% unemployment. Right. So it's right. not that, oh, let's great, let's create some space. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, let's put a park So there. anyway, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, but then still, I mean, you just described a little bit how you have to, you know, you have to stick to your guns and planning, but then you also have to, you know, set and reset priorities. And we just talked about these last three years uh, that asked some major questions of us uh, in terms of what constitutes functional urban life. So, I mean, I'm assuming also as part of that space is also space and decision making and, and ability to renegotiate where, where you need to. Can you give us an example of, you know, in these 
this, this layer cake of crises that we live through and are living through, how that manifested in City Hall? Well, a layer cake of crises. This is interesting. I mean, it's, uh, we've also had, a, as, as you uh, sort of, you know, uh, you know, refer to the, the 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 relationship now also with the city of Kiev. I mean, city of, of Kiev has been our oldest city, sister city. We just last year celebrated 60 years um, of a partnership, and through four de- through four political systems, mm. um, and uh, always the two the two cities remaining the two cities. But uh, and so this is something that has helped us now in the in the situation you know, with the war in Ukraine to you know, really mobilize, and we've mobilized in city council a special budget of 11 million euros, um, and we also provided three million euros of, of aid to Kiev, where you know, I was recently on the panel with our federal development minister, who proudly said that oh now she has found three million for intercity cooperation between. Uh, you know, between Germany and Ukraine, and said, "Well, this is what we spend on a sort of you know tiny little poor. I, I mean, we're just poor Leipzig. We're not yeah. rich Hamburg, you know. Yeah. So um, that's that's um, something where we, you know, that you know, where the question that you put out in the beginning: what are the alliances? What are the platforms that enable us to act in a? Um, you know, this is one of the you know those platforms, and I, and I very much like what Almud was saying on the." You know, the European Union providing a platform also for our line staff to experience yeah. international yeah. cooperation. It's yeah. all nice that we sit here. It's all nice that the head of the international offices go and visit each other. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't become palpable for sort of a housing officer or for a city planner or for a junior program manager in the youth department, you know, international connectedness is lofty stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I think this is where the, these EU programs provide a great platform because they help us bring you know international experiences and may just be with a European sister city uh, in 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 the framework of a European program to junior staff and to middle management staff in our in our and to our city councillors mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because we can't fly our city councillors to Chicago so easily. We can, but we can have them take a train ride to Lyon. You know. So so this is where. Uh, it, it becomes meaningful and, and the whole, I mean, it's also ho- hopefully a bulwark against you know, what we discuss here, an yeah. authoritarian wave that says, okay, uh, whatever, Hungary first, uh, you know, America first, whatever first, you know, and I don't care about my neighbors. And so I think this is where, where we, it becomes part of a broader political agenda and the fight for liberal democracy. I think this particular piece about city managers and giving them the kind of resources, you know, tools. You, you, you guys talked about models and public-private partnerships, kind of what works. I think that's something that I heard very... It's just part of the city and state diplomacy task force to put, a, put an office of city and state diplomacy in the U.S. State Department. And the number one thing we heard, or at least was effectively what you said, except for in a more complaining tone, is that if you ask city managers, you know, could they also take on all these international roles or could they also carry this water for the national government or could they? And they said no. Because they're busy taking the trash out, fixing the potholes, engaging with the public, figuring out the housing dilemma, you know. And, and if quote unquote, from that collaboration doesn't come additional resources or additional right. how to or where to or with what resource, with, you know, with what financial resources, then it quickly, international connections can also become a burden unless they're done in a way that, or, you know, the responsibility to do that, unless they're done in a really practical way. So, um, you know, you all three have now seen how some of this, that real practical exchange works. You know, I mean, there's always ideas you can hook on to. But um, maybe starting with Ian, then moving down to Ulrich, what is the most practical thing that you saw over the last, uh, you know, three years of your fellowship where you're like, that's it, that's something that we can almost immediately, or I can take home almost immediately as a practical, I can pare this down or rescale or rethink it, but that's a resource. When we tried to implement the initial housing plan. It was in this top-down way that got no buy-in, and you're in this tough place, because residents have apartments that, if they were privately managed, the DOB would not, the Department of Buildings would not allow them to exist. And you both have very limited solutions from the, what capital can actually come to the table, and you can't accept the status quo. And there's really no, it, it always felt like really a no-win situation and it was especially no win because no matter what you chose it was top down and residents 
wouldn't accept it. It was a failure from the start in their eyes. And something we'd been kicking around was how the participatory process would and should look like. And this was when I was at the Housing Authority. And when we went on our trip and, and met with different folks in the housing infrastructure you have here, there was just a reality of tenant participation in ownership and management and decision making. Um, and all of this has, has led into, I went back and I really started championing a different model where we have to have a vote and we're actually working on these rules or my, my former colleagues are working on these rules right now. There has to be at the beginning of this process of every housing campus, a moment where you talk to them, say these are the options, you need to be at the table making a decision mm -hmm. to actually have buy-in, not just for the implementation, but for how we adjudicate success. So that was just tenant buy-in, having them as part of the process, and having almost shared mutual responsibility really was something I took mm -hmm. from our trip to Germany. Mm -hmm. How about you, Tony? Yeah, uh, I would say that, uh, I know we're short on time, so I'll try to be brief. I, I think something that we picked up um, in Chicago, I took back immediately to you know, my role in New York, and it was this very small idea of listening to activists and advocates in, in spaces. The, you know, we, walk, we did this walking tour of this um, you know, transit-oriented development that's happening and this you know, remodeling of, of a side of Chicago um, that took in heavy consideration what people on the ground actually had to say. And I know it sounds like a really like a no-brainer. You should listen to the folks who are on the ground dealing with issues every day. Um, but it, it wasn't just listening to them, it was them also making a conscious decision to be an active stakeholder in all the political processes. It was more than just railing against an administration from outside, it was looking for ways to actually inject yourself into the broader uh, policy making and decision making uh, system and structure. Uh, so, you know, in New York, what we did, you know, we had an income in administration. Uh, the Adams administration, and what we did was we sought ways to actually be part of that. We joined the, the transition committee. We injected ourselves into the housing plan yeah. in ways that actually allowed us to better reflect both the priorities we had, but also that of the people who are within our stakeholder group. Well, Leipzig is one of the cities in Germany next to Hamburg, next to Dortmund, Mannheim, Düsseldorf, that are the cities that are sort of most active on the international stage. Are there examples that you have looked and seen in the international context that you have found a way of applying in Leipzig and why? Well, I think it's good to have these city-to-city -city networks and we're very active in Eurocities, as Almut has also you know, said, that's a, sort of our framework and our, and our sort of main line and also with the Leipzig Carta, you know, the, of the EU, with the central EU policy document that we've sort of tried to follow and try to implement and so on. But, I think the key transatlantic takeaway for me, and of course, unfortunately I wasn't able to go on those trips, uh, I was just able to have dinner with you in Leipzig, uh, but the key transatlantic takeaway, takeaway for me is always um, the role of capturing value through property taxes. And this is something that is completely underdeveloped in Germany, uh, where we f f find multiple ways of working around and having private developers co-pay co whatever they do. And, Sort of that's you know that's something where where you know we need to have a, a very much more and of course we're now budging our whole in, in, you know introduction of a reformed property tax in Germany at the moment through sort of non-competing and non-coordinated um, online systems, but if we eventually get it right, we need to continue that conversation of how we tax property locally and how we also as as city governments participate in the increasing value of mm. property mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, and then of course share it also for, for local social infrastructure yeah, 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 to yeah. avoid sort of these displacement effects that we've discussed. And so that's for me the key transatlantic takeaway that we need to still have on the taxation side and this is the, you know, the former Ministry of Finance official in me that comes through. But the question of, of you know, where do we see the sort of the, you know, sort of the biggest uh, collaboration pieces has really been for Leipzig, our partners um, you know, with the city of Gdansk, with, uh, unfortunately, our dear colleague, uh, Pavel Adamovich, who was murdered. And I think he's been a great partner for us in developing our history of democracy and our 
um, you know, the, the, the Solidarity Center in Gdansk and also the uh, sort of tradition of the peaceful transition in, in Leipzig, but also now the city partnership with Kiev, which is the most important right now. And so, but we continue to, you know, to remain committed to international exchange. And of course, it's also a, um, a deep feeling of gratitude to being open to the world and being sort of reconnecting to that Leipzig tradition of openness. I think the new mayor of Gdansk, who I also just saw in Amsterdam, is, is very engaged in continuing that and uh, continuing engagement in um, you know, the legacy of, of, of the transition and what it then means to play it forward vis-a-vis uh, -vis the conflict in Ukraine. You know, this was a real deep dive in, into questions of housing and equity and what works and what doesn't work. And I'm particularly grateful to this panel for not sugarcoating it, for pinpointing, you know, where the work remains. Because, yes, the three years may have come to a conclusion. And it was Almut and I really enjoyed being on the uh, advisory board for this fellowship and getting to see all of your biographies before we uh, helped select you. So it's really a pleasure to be in the room with everybody's actually animated faces. Um, but, you know, the work remains, but I think what is you've heard from these three gentlemen and from our main stage program is that, you know, principally it takes committed individuals to want to make a difference every day. So thanks to the three of you. Thanks to all of you. Bon voyage. And uh, thank you for everything that you've done over these last three years. You just heard the fifth episode of Empowering Cities. Did you miss our other episodes? Our first is on the American Rescue Plan. The second discusses how to finance the climate transformation. The third provides insights into what our fellows learned about transportation, housing, and public safety from their trips to Germany and the United States. While number four is a discussion on the Nova Cities Index, a blueprint for urban progress. You can find all four on our website at new dash urban-progress.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Empowering Cities is a series on how urban spaces can lead the way in inclusive innovation, sustainability, and social justice. This series is part of New Urban Progress, a transatlantic project on the future of cities. This podcast was produced by Das Progressive Zentrum. Post-production and additional recordings by Emma Gaster from Das Progressive Zentrum with music by Amin Mualem. My name is Diego Rivas. Thank you for listening. That was our last episode of our series, Empowering Cities, part of New Urban Progress. Catch you at the next episode of Talking Progress, the podcast that explores progressive ideas for Germany, Europe, and transatlantic spaces.